Welcome to the podcast of Follow Baptist Church. Our vision and mission is to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged and inspired by this message. For more information on Follow Church, you can visit our website at www.followchurch.com.au. internet and they've got uh, alternative endings like our Billy Madison where um, he says you rewarded no points because of there's no point at all in that incoherent mess that makes any uh, sense of anything from scripture whatsoever um, and so you, I encourage you to google that later and have a bit of a laugh but that video is a video um, from Victoria Osteen, her and her husband Joel Osteen lead the biggest church in the United States of America, 43,000 people every single weekend uh, come along to to hear uh, their preaching. Um, but for me, when I watch the videos um, from their church, it, it reminds me of what's possible when we walk away from God's Word. It reminds me of what happens, that we can actually lead people astray and it can have disastrous, disastrous effects on their lives uh, now in the present, but also eternally. Today in 1 Timothy chapter 4, we come to an important part of the passage And we're really focusing on two things today as we look at this part of the passage. It's um, doctrine and life and the fact that those two things go together. So before we get to 1 Timothy chapter 4 today, um, I want to actually just recap the series so far because uh, we've had a few weeks now as we've gone through the letter to 1 Timothy. Last week we had a break for Mother's Day and so it's good just to lay the foundation again of what we're looking at. Um, I think this letter was a very personal letter. It was written by the Apostle Paul, an older man, to a younger man, Timothy, who was the pastor of the church in Ephesus. In week one, we learned that there was real intimacy between these guys. They traveled together on the second and third missionary journeys, and they had done life together, and so there was an intimacy. And it's from this intimacy that Paul is now investing into this young guy's life. In week one, we we sort of explored the fact that Timothy probably saw Paul as a hero, as a role model, certainly as a spiritual mentor, and he is someone that Timothy would have looked up to. In fact, he's journeyed with um, Paul for so long that he's had Paul by his side in the difficult times. And so anytime he needed advice, Paul was there. When he needed to have difficult sermons taught, it was usually Paul that would have taught them. Uh, Difficult people, difficult pastoral situations... Paul would have been the one who took the brunt of all that stuff. And so if Timothy ever had to do those things, he always would have had Paul's support. Now, as we know in the letter itself, Paul has now continued on his travels. He's taken off and he's going on another journey to share the gospel. But he's telling Timothy to stay in Ephesus. In chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Timothy, stay there in Ephesus. Now, what do we know about Timothy? Well, I think as we look through the letter, it becomes pretty clear that uh, Timothy's not your typical, um, bold, uh, conversational, confident, loud, out there kind of pastor. He's not an extrovert. I think he's more likely to be an introvert. He's quite a timid guy. And so that's what we know about Timothy. 
what do we know about the church he's leading? Well, we know the church he's leading is rather large and it's a mess. It's absolutely full of false teaching, uh, controversies, divisions and strife. And so I want you to try and get in Timothy's head for a moment. Because I think if we can get into his head and try and put ourselves in his shoes, it'll give us a better understanding of what's happening and what's being taught in this letter. And so Timothy's timid, his church is a mess, his mentors flown the coop, and people are now looking to him. They're looking to him for spiritual guidance, they're looking to him for advice, they're looking to him for teaching, they're looking to him for pastoral support. And I think it's highly likely that Timothy was freaking out a little bit. All of a sudden, the buck is stopping with him. And I've got to say, I can relate to this in some ways. For a decade, I've been an associate pastor in a couple of churches, and uh, I've always known, I mean, that has its struggles of its own, but I've always known that ultimately, the buck hasn't stopped with me. I'm not the lead pastor of the church. And so when someone comes to you, and they says, oh, Luke, I want to start this really exciting ministry, and I need you to help me get it started. Can you help me? I can say yes, but when they say we need $10,000 to start it, I can say the senior pastor's office is just over there, and I can kind of handball it on. When people say, uh, what's the church's stance on the book of Revelation? Is it pre-mill, post-mill, A-mill, a uh, windmill? Um, I can just kind of handball it on to the, to the lead pastor. And so the buck doesn't kind of stop with me. But what I've noticed now is that in many ways it does. And so people are looking to you for answers, for care, for wisdom, for vision. And sometimes it can feel a little bit daunting, sometimes a little bit overwhelming. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want you to speculate over lunch and, and sort of weigh up whether Luke's having a breakdown. That's, that's not happening. I'm actually really enjoying leading the church. And, and even in a few weeks that have been difficult, uh, I really feel like God's given us the strength and the vision and the passion and the energy to lead God's people. And, and we count it an incredible privilege. to to lead a church such as this, with so many people that are passionate for God, passionate for the gospel, and just want to see us make a difference in the community for the glory of God. But what I'm trying to say is this, that it's very different when the buck stops with you. And this is where Timothy finds himself. He finds himself now in this situation where all the eyes have turned on him. And when we have that background in mind, it helps us make sense of the contents of the letter. Everything in this letter is written by Paul to encourage and instruct Timothy on how to pastor God's people. He gives advice on how to handle false teaching. He gives advice on teaching on godly character. In chapter 2, we looked at the fact that he unpacked the roles of men and women in the church. In chapter 3, he lays down the qualifications of godly leadership to be put in place. And all of this is advice to a young man who now has the responsibility to oversee a church in circumstances that at times would have been very difficult, perhaps even overwhelming. I think one of the key verses that highlights this is at the end of the last chapter, chapter 3, verse 15. Paul says, If I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, not in the culture around them, not in the world, but in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And so today, as we get to chapter 4, we're looking at the two main themes of doctrine and life. And so the passage itself kind of breaks down into these two things. We see in verses 1 to 11, Paul focuses in on the importance of doctrine 
But in verses 12 to 16, he then talks about how what we understand about God's word, how it actually works out in our everyday lives. How do we live in response to the doctrine that we hold? And so the big picture takeaway today, if there's one thing I want you to remember to take away from this sermon today, it's this, that doctrine and life must go hand in hand. We can't have doctrine over here and some sort of different kind of life over there. These two things must go hand in hand. If I'm going to be an effective pastor, my doctrine and my life need to go together. If you're going to be an effective Christian witness, if we're going to be a church that has an eternal impact, then those two things must come together. But what I've noticed over the years is that there seems to be two sort of separate streams of Christianity kind of happening. One of them is the conservative stream. And uh, in the conservative stream, there's a lot of people that just love to argue about doctrine. And they'll sit around and they'll study and they'll dig in deep and all that's good in and of itself. Um, but they, you know, they can tell you all the five points of Calvin and they can tell you about predestination and they can argue about the Hebrew and the Greek and they can kind of bicker over those things and, and try and look more intelligent than one another. The problem is that uh, if that's all that happens, it just becomes dead, dry head knowledge that puffs us up with pride. It's like they become constipated Christians. I know that's a disturbing image, but it sort of expresses what I'm trying to say. They're full of doctrine, but it never goes anywhere. It never flows out of them. I should stop, shouldn't I? It's not good. So that's one stream of Christianity. The other stream of Christianity is kind of what I'd call the liberal stream of Christianity. And sometimes they're actually really good at um, doing what Jesus has asked them to do in terms of caring for the poor and and feeding the hungry and and meeting practical needs in the community. The problem is so often they do that at the expense of holding on to doctrine. And so they abandon doctrine. And to put it bluntly, we can feed people to hell if we're just focused on their stomach and don't care about their spiritual health. And so these two streams are both unhealthy in their own way. And I think it's really important that if we're going to have an impact as a church, that these two need, things need to go hand in hand, doctrine and life. In fact, one flows from the other, doesn't it? Our doctrine, our understanding of who God is, our understanding of what Christ has done, our understanding of what he's calling us to do will directly shape how we live our lives. Paul uh, James says it like this. He says, faith without deeds is dead. And so we're called to love God's word, but we're also called to live God's word. Timothy says that, uh, sorry, Paul says it in this passage in verse 16. He says, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them both, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your And so in the first 11 verses, he focuses in on the important area of doctrine. Now, when I talk about doctrine, I talk about not dry head knowledge. I talk about our understanding of who God is, coming to know God through his word. This morning, if I had a book here, um, which would instruct you on how to go to the gym and build your muscles. Clearly, I don't have a book like that. Uh, If I did and I lent it to you and you went and you took that book and you applied it, uh, you would probably end up the opposite to me. You would have muscles. And so you could go, you could apply that book, and you could also give your own strength to that um, thing, and you would actually develop your muscle. Now, what I want to say about the Bible is it's very different. And what makes it different is that this is not a dry, dead textbook. This book is alive. And so as we commit ourselves and dedicate ourselves to the living, active Word of God, we are transformed not by what we know, but by who we know. And it's not about doing things in our own strength, 
It's about receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. Today's Pentecost Sunday, by the way. Receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit and then living by the power of the Spirit as he points us to Jesus and transforms us to be more like Christ. And so it's so important that we are living that way. And so in that regard, doctrine is absolutely critical because it points us to Jesus. And we're introduced to who Jesus is and what he's done for us. You may have seen before the visual representation of the problem with us and God. The problem is that we're separated from God by our sin. And you may have seen it in picture form where you're on the edge of a cliff and God's kind of over there and there's this big chasm between you and God and there's nothing you can do to bridge the gap to God. You can try and do good works. Uh, You can try and um, be a good person. You can try and say all the right things and know the right theology, but the result will be the same. If we try and get our own way to God, we're going to fall and the end result is going to be death. There is no way in our own strength that we can come back into relationship with God. The only way that we can bridge that gap is through Christ, who stands in the gap with his arms stretched out. And he says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so in Christ, he can take us uh, sinners and he can bring us back into relationship with God the Father, the God who's completely holy and blameless. And it's incredible that the gospel teaches that we can be saved in Christ. The Bible teaches that uh, he's the only way to the Father, that anyone who believes in their heart that Jesus uh, is Lord and declares that with their mouth will be saved. And so Jesus says here, as I stand in the gap, I died on the cross for you. Your sins, every sin you've ever committed, every sin you're going to commit in the future, I paid the price for that sin. And when you accept what I did, your sin is placed on me. And instead of you having the last word for your sin, and that word is guilt, I have the last words, and the words are, it is finished. And so all you need to do is accept what I've done for you. All you need to do is take my hand and say, yes, Jesus, I need you. Thank you for dying in my place. Thank you for forgiving me of my sin. Thank you for bringing me back into relationship with God the Father. This is what makes the Bible so incredible. It's not a textbook. It's the living, active Word of God that helps us to encounter God through a relationship with His Son, Jesus Christ. And so we should never see this as something that is boring, but we should see it as something that is alive and that can change our lives. And so it's so important that we hold on to our doctrine. You see, everything in this book points to Jesus. Uh, In the Old Testament, uh, all the prophets, they point to the cross, Jesus, what he did for us. It's all fulfilled in him. Every bit of scripture post-Jesus actually points back to the cross and it points forward to the future that we have in him. And so the whole thing, from the very first page to the very back page, is about Jesus. And to hold on to sound doctrine is to have Jesus at the center of our lives, at the center of who we are, at the center of all that we do. And it clearly teaches that Jesus is enough. It's not Jesus plus all this stuff I've got to do. I've got to be a good person. I've got to knock on a certain amount of doors and I've got to do all this stuff. It's, It's not Jesus plus anything. It's just Jesus is all sufficient. He's enough for us to be saved. And this is a problem in the church that Timothy finds himself in. They had problems, big problems, with false doctrine. Chapter 1 told us that. Paul tells Timothy to command certain men not to teach false doctrine anymore. 
here in chapter 4, what that false doctrine is, is actually unpacked. And what it basically is, is in a nutshell, is this, that they were teaching Jesus is not enough. It's Jesus plus. And it's Jesus plus, you must abstain from marriage. And it's Jesus plus, you must avoid certain foods. Now, we know, if we hold on to sound doctrine, very, very quickly, that that preaching and that teaching is not biblical. We know from the start of creation, uh, all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, that marriage is not just a good idea, it's a God idea. And God put marriage together. He says in verse 24, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. Now within that covenant relationship, he's also given us the gift of um, single people, close your eyes, uh, your ears, sorry, ears. Um, he's given us the gift of sex. And God is good, isn't he? It's an incredible gift that he has given us to enjoy. And so teaching that encourages us to avoid marriage is going to be contrary to God's will and plan and it will work against the desires that God himself has given us. I think we've just got to look at the Catholic Church to see what happens when we live this out. It can end up being disastrous. Sexual abuse in the church has caused more damage to people's lives and to the credibility of the church than any other issue in the last 50 years. And I think it has a direct correlation with a departing from sound doctrine. When men deny marriage as a gift from God and suppress God-given sexual desires that he designed for us to express within a covenant relationship, those desires uh, can, as we've seen, come out in unnatural, sinful and incredibly harmful ways. And so all of a sudden we see how important doctrine is because when we don't guard it and we work against God's word, it can actually cause great harm in people's lives. And so they said you need to abstain from marriage. Not only that, you need to avoid certain foods. Well, Jesus himself said, it's not what goes into our mouth that makes us unclean, it's what comes out of our mouth and how true that is. I think the point Paul is making to Timothy is that for those who believe and know the truth, we can actually receive these things. And we can receive these things with thankful hearts because God has provided them for our enjoyment. You know, I think a lot of people have this view that God's the grumpy old man in the clouds and he's like a divine killjoy. And anytime he sees anyone uh, happy or having any kind of joy, he's kind of like, I'm going to get rid of that. Uh, Someone's smiling, let's give them a bad circumstance and wreck that. Uh, There's a husband and wife about to get intimate, let's give the wife a headache. Sorry, darling, not tonight. Um, you know, you see a guy about to eat bacon. Nah, you can't eat that. We see God as this divine killjoy. But it couldn't be further from the truth. It should be a great delight being in relationship with God. There's no guarantee that life will be easy following Christ. We all know that. But what we do know is that there'll be moments of incredible joy. And it's found in Him. As we come to Him. As we're reminded of who He is, what He's done. And what our future is in Him. That we are secure and saved. It's incredible. It's the greatest news you'll ever hear. Verse 4 says, For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it's consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Verse 6, Timothy, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value. But godliness has value for all things. Holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. 
That is why we labor and strive, because we've put our hope in the living God. Not in abstaining from marriage, not in uh, avoiding certain foods, not in doing good things. No, we put our hope and faith in the living God, who's the Savior of all people, and especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. I've got to be honest, one of my greatest concerns in the Christian church today is it seems that many Christians are abandoning doctrine and exchanging it for an obsession with prosperity, political correctness and popularity. We saw that in the video before. I want you to bear in mind that this letter is written to a young pastor and Paul uh, encourages him and he says, guard your doctrine because if you do, you will save yourself and those who listen to you. Doctrine is so important, but I've noticed lately that it seems that uh, sound doctrine, biblical truth, is met with an increasing hostility. That people who hold to biblical beliefs are increasingly seen as unusual, old-fashioned or irrelevant. I don't know if you saw the other week, but there was a Q&A on the ABC and it was an all-Christian panel. And uh, a couple of the panellists described themselves as progressive Christians, which I think is really usually code word for just moving forward without the Bible. And... Uh, I must admit I was frustrated watching the program and I got to the end of it scratching my head thinking, uh, where was the Christian? It was like a Where's Wally book. You know, there's lots of people there, but it's like, well, I can't quite find the Christian. Is there a Christian here or not? And, and you know, who's a Christian and who's not a Christian is not for me to judge. But I would have thought that Christian's first port of call is to point to Jesus. And in a one-hour episode, we talked about everything else, and I think there was one mention of Jesus Christ in the whole episode, and these are the people that are meant to be representing us. And yet the views of the vast majority of that panel seem to reflect the cultural norm rather than God's Word. It seems that we've become embarrassed by the Bible, embarrassed by God's Word, and that's a huge issue because, as Paul said, the church of the living God, God's people, you and me, are meant to be the pillar and foundation of the truth. Let me tell you, we're not the pillar and foundation of the truth because of our opinion. We're the pillar and the foundation of the truth because of God's revealed word to us. And so this is what we stand on. It's so important that we guard our doctrine. As a pastor of this church, I'm going to make many mistakes. You know that already. I'm going to fall short in many ways. And when I do, I'm going to need grace from you as a congregation. And there's going to be times where you need grace from me, and that's one of the beautiful things about Christian community. But one thing I promise is that I'm always going to do my very best to preach God's Word. It won't be popular at times. It'll often feel very different to what we're immersed in in the world around us. Some people are going to accuse us and say, well, it's a bit old-fashioned and it's a bit irrelevant. And when they say that, I'm going to think to myself of Psalm chapter 1, which says, "'Bless is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked,' or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff, chaff, I can never say that word, that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so when people say, well, this is my opinion, and I want you to sort of flip a coin between my opinion and God's word, I'm going to say, keep the coin. I don't need it. Your opinion will change in five minutes. God's word's eternal. You know where you're going to find me. 
You know where you're going to find this church? It's going to be standing on God's word and it's going to get increasingly difficult in the world around us. Church, the pressure is building to abandon this book. It shouldn't be a surprise. Second letter of Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. But instead, they will gather around them a great number of teachers who will say what their itching ears want to hear. Church, we need to be faithful. Studying God's word, we need to guard doctrine. The second thing he talks about, he turns his attention to, is life. Doctrine and life, they've got to go together. Now, our doctrine will flow into our life in many ways, won't it? If we hold on to something, it's going to affect the way that we vote, the upcoming election. It's going to be something we pray about. We're going to seek God on, on issues that are important, and God's word is going to shape what we think about those issues, not what the world around us says. Uh, doctrine is going to shape the way that we treat one another. It's going to shape the way that we determine what we care about most. It's going to determine the way that we live our life. One of our DNA core values as a church is that we want to be Bible-based. And you can read this on our website, but it says this. We believe in preaching God's word faithfully. It shapes who we are and it guides our lives as we seek to live in obedience to it by following the truth. And so here at Follow Baptist Church, we want to do our very best to stand on God's word but as we do, it needs to flow and shape the way that we live. Now, most of you would know that seven weeks ago on cue, my wife Kim uh, had open heart surgery. <laughs> would you like to come up here, darling, with me or not? No, I didn't think so. And she had open heart surgery and that went all well. It went according to plan and the, the surgeon's really happy with it, which is great. But about six weeks after the surgery, uh, we had to go in for an appointment with the surgeon just to get an update on how it all went. Now, Kim got a phone call a week before that um, from a, a lady at Monash Heart, and she said, we want you to come in for a test or to talk about a test. And so um, Kim was a bit sleep deprived at the time, I think, and she didn't ask what the test was about. Uh, I was at the hospital with Lenny, and so I got home, and by the time I got home, Kim was a little bit concerned about what this test was. And so I rang the hospital, and I rang Monash Heart, and I said, my name's Luke Williams, my wife had open heart surgery a few weeks ago, and she got a phone call this morning asking her to come into Monash Heart for a test, and we'd just like to know what that test is all about. So the lady said, oh sure, Mr. Williams, and you hear her typing, let me look that up. And she looked it up, and she said, there's no uh, record of any appointment here for you. Uh, Are you sure it was Monash Heart Reception? Yes. Uh, Maybe it was your surgeon, I'll put you through the surgeon room. So we went through the surgeon room, they knew nothing about it. The surgeon room put us through to the ward, they knew nothing about it. It went around that circle twice and half an hour later, the end result was we had no idea who had rung or what the test was about. We just knew that it was 11.30 the following Thursday, a couple of hours before our meeting with the surgeon at 1.30. And so we decided to go and just to find out what was going on. So 11.30 we turned up to the reception of Monash Heart as instructed, went up to the desk and said, my name's Luke Williams, my wife's here, she's here for a test. Uh, once again, looked at the system, there's no record of a test here. And Kim said, well, I think it was a lady called Catherine. And they said, no, not, well, maybe Kirsten. Yeah, okay, Kirsten. Ring Kirsten. Kirsten comes out the back and she walks in and she says, Kim Williams here? Yes. And so we follow Kirsten out to a back room. When we get to the back room, the surgeon's sitting there. Uh, we know him, obviously. But there's another lady with him that we've never seen before. And she starts the conversation uh, like this. She says, my name's so-and-so, and I'm from the infectious disease unit. It's not a great way to start a conversation, is it? <laughs> and she says, the problem is this, that um, some of the equipment that was used on Kim in the operation, particularly the, the tube they put down her throat, was not cleaned properly. And so it's affected 14 people. 
And so we need to test you today for hep B, hep C, HIV, but the good news is uh, all those things are treatable. Can you believe that? Hep B, hep C, HIV, the good news, exciting. Uh, it's all treatable if you got it, don't, don't stress out, I mean, it'll be fine. Um, and so anyway, I asked a few questions like who on earth's uh, responsibility was this, how could this happen? Um, didn't really get any adequate answers to that, but they did the test anyway. Uh, later in the day, they rang and they said it was all clear, and uh, which is really good. But the point of the story is this, that the people who did the operation, the doctors, the surgeons, the, the people who clean the equipment, they know the doctrine. They know what to do. But when they don't follow it, it can end up being disastrous. And I think that's exactly what Paul's saying to Timothy. It's one thing knowing your doctrine, but your doctrine and life must go hand in hand. You must apply what you know. And this is where he turns to in verse 12. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Young people, you're not just the future of this church. You're the president of this church. Don't let people look down on you because you're young, but instead set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Don't neglect your gift, which was given to you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. I want you to see today that living for God should never be a burden or an obligation. It's not like, well, I know the doctrine now, and so I guess I better do it. I know I've got to follow God, so not happy about it, but um, I'll just do it for the rest of my life, I guess. It should never be like that. Following God should be the most exciting thing. When we know doctrine, that we have been saved from a hopeless situation, that Jesus died in our place, that we are set free from our sins, no more shame, no more guilt, no more condemnation, free to worship the God who created us, the God who gives us ultimate purpose and meaning and direction for life. When we get to be his co-workers to make a difference in creation, that's incredible. Man, it's not a dry doctrine, I've got to do it because I know it. No, no, we've come to know not what we know, but it's who we know. He's incredible. I want to please him. I want to live for him. That's where doctrine flows into life. It's an incredible privilege. And so when Paul says to Timothy, set an example in these areas, uh, set an example in speech, for example, I don't think he's saying, uh, just don't use naughty words. I think he's saying, you've got an opportunity here. Timothy, you know the tongue carries the power of life or death. So use it for life. Set an example in your speech. Encourage, teach, build up, edify, rebuke. Do everything with your speech that will bring glory to God. And so the application for us is pretty obvious, isn't it? How do we use our speech? Is it mainly negative or is it positive? Is it in fear Always talking about what we can't do is what we don't have, or is it faith? Is it tearing down people, or is it building up? Is it discouraging, or is it encouraging? Young or old, set the example with your speech. Set the example with your life. How does every moment of your life reflect your doctrine of who God is? The fact that we know he's always watching. How does our life reflect that when we're on the sporting field? I just felt convicted all of a sudden. You think you're better than me? What about on the Monash Monash peak hour? How does your life reflect the doctrine you have? 
How does it live out when things are going well, when things are difficult, when things are falling apart? What does your life show about the God you've met through Scripture? Set the example in your love. We know doctrine, don't we? Love the Lord your God. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Timothy, set the example in love. When you're leading people, when you're serving people, when you're serving with people, set the example in love. You're not abusing and using people. You're not blowing your top at them. You're not discouraging people. No, no, you're setting the example with self-sacrificial love. What an opportunity as a leader to do that. Set the example in faith. What does your doctrine tell you? God created the heavens and the earth with his words. He can do all things. With him, all things are possible. His arms not too short. And so, Timothy, lead like you know a God who can do the miraculous. Step out in faith. Take risks knowing that God is able to do what he's calling you to do. Set the example in purity. I don't think he's just talking about stopping to watch porn on the internet, although that's a very good thing to do. I think he's saying, you know, set the example in your life in purity. Uh, husbands, the way you love your wives as one woman men, where, where society's falling down and breaking down, step up into the gap and lead in the area of purity. Lead in this area. And people will look at the church and, and the, the marriages and the relationships and they'll go, wow, they're doing something. What are they doing? They're standing on the word of God. Lead in the area of purity. Verse 15, be diligent in these matters, giving yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Let me leave you with a challenging question this morning. Are you progressing in your faith? Think of yourself 12 months ago. Think of yourself now. Can people see the difference? I was just talking to Rowan the other day. I didn't tell him I was going to say this, but I don't usually ask for permission, so I'm going to do it anyway. But I was speaking to Rowan the other day, and I just said I'm so encouraged by the growth I'm seeing in his life. Uh, in the last three months, it's been incredible the way he responds to things, the way he leads, the, the words he uses, the, the scripture he's going to. It's incredible to see the growth in his life. And I'm so encouraged to see people progressing in their faith. As your pastor, you should see me progress in life and in faith. As your pastor, I should see you progress in your life. This is what the Bible calls sanctification. We're on a journey to become more like Christ. Church, I'm so excited about the growth in our church and the lives of so many of you over the last 12 months or so. I believe that God's going to keep using us to reach people in increasing measure with the gospel and to bless this community. But for that to happen, we need to keep our doctrine. We need to guard our doctrine. We need to guard our lives. And those two things need to go hand in hand. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we're not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of salvation to save every person who believes. Lord, we know that people aren't going to like it. They're not going to like what your word says, but we thank you that through your word, we've encountered your son, Jesus Christ. And we can come to know him. We can put our faith in him knowing that we are saved, forgiven, and have eternal life. There's nothing more important or incredible than that. And so, Lord, as we understand our doctrine in a sound way, Lord, I pray that it would flow into our lives, that people would not just uh, hear what we believe, but they would see it. Titus says that we can adorn the gospel. We can make it more attractive. And the way we make it more attractive is by living it. So, Lord, help us to live it for the glory of God and for the benefit of those that don't know you. In Jesus' name, amen.